it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to the Situation in the Story podcast, where you get to listen in on compelling conversations with authors about their latest work and what's behind it. I'm your host, Chris Moore, a queer writer and educator living in Denver. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Why do you write? Well, you know, that is such an interesting question for a writer because it's sort of like, why do you live? You know, but that's not a very good answer. So for me, I think I, I think about the, um, the enforcer quote, um, you know, I, I write so I can see what I think, right. I, you know, I, I write to see, you know, see what I said, see what I think. And I think for me, that's really true. I write so that I can figure out how I feel about things because I don't often know why I do the things I do or why I feel the things I feel until I write them down. Mm -hmm. And so I think if I didn't write, I would be a very discombobulated person. (laughs) And so that's, that's the main reason I write. Um, And I also think too, and I tell my students this is that like, really horrible things happen to all of us, right? And the longer we live, the more things we have to suffer and grieve and um, bear. And I think that for the writer, at least I kind of think, okay, well, I have to suffer or bear this difficult thing, but at least I can make art out of it. At least I can make something useful out of something difficult. So that's the other reason. Yeah. For me. That's that's good stuff. So we're talking about bad tourist misadventures and love and travel is the subtitle. And I was super excited to get to get this book and to be able to talk to you because I am also a big traveler. I uh, do a lot of solo travel. And I mean, that's kind of a loaded thing if you're a woman, right? So I'm excited to talk about kind of all the different facets facets of that. But um, before we do, could you just kind of describe uh, the collection for listeners who maybe haven't read it yet? Sure, sure. I'm happy to. So um, my uh, last book, Bad Tourist, Misadventures in Love and Travel, is a collection of um, travel essays and some are some are pretty short, little some are a little bit longer, and they're arranged in um, in sort of a guidebook format. So uh, I when I, when I put the collection together, I looked at like my Lonely Planet guidebooks, and I thought, well, how do they arrange? Right, so sights, sleeping, eating, and drinking, spas, and beauty treatments, and um, 
I did this as kind of an ironic thing, right? Because this is kind of an anti-guidebook. It's not what you should do or where you should sleep. It's like <laughs> maybe what you should try to avoid doing or maybe, <laughs> you know, what you might do too that is, um, you know, due to in part to your cultural blind spots. And so the title Bad Tourist is also kind of ironic, right? Because we hear the word tourist and we immediately think, well, tourists are bad. You know, and then this whole conversation about traveler versus tourist, which I have a lot of ideas about. Mm. And they're not the same ideas that most people have. Mm -hmm. um, so I arranged it that way. And so it's it's a book about a woman, a young woman, because it spans from when I was about 30 to about 40, um, sort of finding her way through traveling you know, finding her way um, through the world. Um, and as you mentioned, I do travel alone. Sometimes I travel sometimes with a girlfriend. Um, sometimes I travel with a, a love interest. And and so that's, that's sort of the book. Yeah. Um, even though you kind of organi organized it like a guidebook and it's got those, I think it's eight different sections, it still feels to me like it has somewhat of a narrative arc. Would you agree? I, I'm glad you said that. I hope so. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, and it, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I've, I've been thinking a lot about narrative arc. I mean, a lot, a lot, because my, my, new, my new book that'll be coming out next March is, again, another collection of essays, which I did not intend to write two books of essays in a row. It just kind of happened. And, you know, as a, as a teacher, I'm always telling students, oh, narrative arc has to have a beginning, middle and end, has to bring the reader on some kind of a journey, which in some ways I'm starting to question, you know, because it's sort of that like hero's journey. It's very patriarchal. It's very Western in a lot of respects. And so I kind of like meandering, but I also know that that our brains like story in, in sort of a consequential way. So when I arranged this, I did not arrange it in chronological order, which mm -hmm. has driven some readers crazy. <laughs> so, you know, you can go look at my, you know, one star reviews or whatever on Goodreads and readers hate, some readers hate it. They're like, wow. oh, this, to be, this would be a much better book if it was in chronological order. And of course I'm like, well, actually it wouldn't be, but <laughs> that, that's fine. It wouldn't be because our arc of self-discovery and our arc of growth is not on this sort of bell curve, right? Mm -hmm. like we we become better people and then worse people, right? We become more self-actualized and then we realize we don't know shit, right? Mm -hmm. So so I think for me, I wanted to arrange it in that in that true way that like, oh, I'm I'm growing, I'm learning, I'm oh no, I'm screwing up again. But there's less screw ups toward the end, right? Mm -hmm. There's less sort of, you know, travel faux pas toward mm -hmm. the end. And I arranged it that way to kind of show that I have grown a ton as a traveler, you, you know, since my 30s, right? Like in, when I was 30, I didn't know what it meant, like to to look at the world through like an ethnocentric lens. I just didn't. And now right. I do. Yeah. Um, I have a friend that kind of talks about um, self-discovery and growth as like a spiral that you're always going up and back down and back up, but it's not like you, it's not like you lose <laughs> the things you've learned, but it's not linear. Right. And I talked a lot about and thought a lot about how the, you know, the traditional narrative arc is pretty patriarchal and what are the other structures we can work with and genres we can work with it didn't drive me crazy that it was out of order 
it was noticeable and it was I was like, oh, this is interesting. I wonder why. Is it because they're in these chunks um, by topic? But it felt like more than that. So how in the world, even with the eight sections, did you decide how to order it and structure it? Well, I spent a lot. So this started out as a memoir, um, which was kind of a failed memoir. And I kept pulling pieces out of the memoir where I was like, okay, this piece has this, you know, kind of um, humor in it. And it also has a moment where I'm like being a bad tourist and I'm trying not to be. And so I kept, and I had the, this file called bad tourist and I just kept pulling pieces out, pulling pieces out. And then I looked at it and I'm like, Oh my God, I have like a hundred thousand words. there." <laughs> so I put that in this order and I tried to do what you said, like thinking about like how, you know, how, how, how does it make sense for me to organize this? And also thinking about at that point, a reader, right? So thinking about how do I, how do I introduce certain people, right? Like I have to introduce my now husband, but I have to talk about my ex-husband. So I need to make sure those are early, right? The ex-husband stuff's earlier. And then my friend Cholet, who I travel with a lot, I have to introduce her early too. You know, I have to make sure we know who she is when we get to the, you know, the, the pieces about India or whatever. And I arranged it. And then I overlaid that bad, tur you know, the bad tourist, the lonely planet, um, you know, guidebook thing. And it was almost exactly in the right order. So that's when I knew I had a book and I had to move a couple things around, you know, like I moved a couple things, like one, I think one, like the Mongolia essay that's in, um, I don't even remember. I think it's in festivals. It was earlier in, in something else, but there was a festival in it. So I was like, mm -hmm. Oh, I can put that there. But some of them work in obviously multiple would work in multiple. Right. So you 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 said a few moments ago that it started out as a memoir, but it was a failed memoir. What do you mean by that? Well, so I started writing this memoir. Um, it was actually it was called Between Men and Countries, and it was about traveling the world and having a lot of affairs, which happens in bad tourists. But I did cut some of the affairs out. <laughs> Um, and you know, so anyone who reads it and thinks, wow, she has a lot of affairs. Well, I cut some. Um, so, so it was this memoir, but then it started to become about my mother. So I have a very, had my mother passed away. I've had a very complicated relationship with my mother and she just insisted like not, she didn't insist to me because she was already dead, but she just insisted in my writing, her ghost insisted on getting in, getting in, getting in. And mm -hmm. so this book became this book about how I, how I don't want to become like my mother, but then there's things that I do want that I didn't learn until really after she died. And so I had an agent at the time who kept pushing me more of your mom, more of your mom, more of your mom. And I was like, so I resisted and instead took my mom completely out of the book mm. and broke up with the agent. Interesting. But in the meantime, I had all these pieces. And so, and then in the meantime, my mom got sick. I took care of her while she was dying. And now the book I'm working on is a book about, it's about taking care of my mom when she's dying, but it's also, it's really about mother daughter dynamics. Mm -hmm. It's about reconciliation and, and non-reconciliation. And I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know if anyone's going to want to read it. I don't know if there's already too many of these books out on the market, but I have to finish this book for me. That's yeah. it. Finish well, it. I definitely want to read it. My partner 
just in the last couple of years also took care of her mother as she was dying. And um, there's, yeah, there's a, a lot of grief still there, but also this dynamic of yes, th some things were resolved, but really there was never like an ownership or an acknowledgement of kind of the fucked up things that she had done even on her deathbed. And so I think you've got at least two people interested in the book. <laughs> well, that's great news because I've got like 110,000 words, but I promise you it won't be that long at the end. Yeah. Um, but that I've been working on every day, really trying to get this book wow. done so I can just move past it. Yeah. So a, a bit ago, you also mentioned the difference between a tourist and a traveler. And I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Oh, I don't think there's any difference. So oh. I think, I think, but I think people think there's a, so, so here's the thing. People like to say, oh, tourists are people who like carry a big suitcase and they go on cruises and they, and they go, you know, to luxury resorts and a traveler wears a backpack and stays in hostels. But if you go to one of those places, you know, let's just pick a country, you go to Nicaragua and there's somebody there, you know, selling, you know, you, whatever, um, on the street, like selling you sunglasses. That person isn't gonna see any difference between the traveler and the tourist, right? They might have a sense that, oh, the person staying at the Spendi Resort maybe can ha has a few more dollars to spend on these sunglasses. But otherwise, there's not a huge amount of difference, right? So I think that that whole, I'm a traveler thing is a way for us to somehow feel like what we're doing is, is sort of more acceptable. I will agree that when we stay in places where like locals live and when we frequent local places and when we ride, you know, local transportation, we do see how people live in, in a way where we don't, when we're like, I mean, I've never been on a cruise ship, but I'm using that as a, the, the ultimate tourist, right? Yeah. Example. What I, what I think about is I think about there's a spectrum of like tourist traveler where some people, you know, do their research and they stay in eco-friendly places and they stay in places that are locally owned. That's all really great. That's being a really responsible tourist or traveler. But I like to think about tourist and traveler versus guest. Mm -hmm. So for me, the most meaningful travel experiences I have had is when I can go be a guest. So for example... Uh, I went, you know, to Morocco and was scheduled to give a reading uh, at my friend Habib's university. And I went and stayed in his house. I stayed in his family house. I stayed in his grandmother's house up in the, you know, in the village. And it was not any place you could find in a lonely planet. And we were his guests. You know, mm -hmm. we sat with them. We went to the market with them. We we saw how it really is to, to be a person living in Morocco. And before that, my husband and I were traveling alone with just the two of us. And like, I thought, Oh my gosh, Morocco. Cause you know, everybody wants you to like get henna and they want you to like pet their Cobra and they want you to go in their, <laughs> in their restaurant. Right. And it was like so stressful. But once we were a guest of Habib, nobody bothered us mm. and it was a really different experience. And, um, and so I think staying in a place longer, um, we're leaving actually tonight. Oh. <laughs> we're leaving to go to Barcelona oh. and we're staying in my friend's apartment and we're staying in one place for, you know, we bought one way tickets. So we don't know how long we'll stay at least three nice. or four weeks. Yeah. And so that is going to enable us, you know, we're going to go to language school. So we'll meet some other travelers, but you know, I'm going to also like go to the bookstore and introduce myself and meet some other writers that are friends of my friend whose apartment we're staying in. So 
those are ways I've tried to travel now mm-hmm. versus maybe in my twenties and thirties. Right. Um, Barcelona is one of my favorites. I want to ask the question that people always ask me, but that I kind of hate and I hate questions about favorites in general, but I want to ask what's one of your favorite places you've traveled to um, and why? Yeah, it's so interesting because I think when you do something a lot, that's really hard. So like mm-hmm. when people ask me, what's your favorite book? And you know, <laughs> I've got these books behind me, right? Exactly. I'm like, okay, can you give me a genre? Like favorite book of poetry or give me five favorite books of poetry. Right. So I guess favorite depends on, you know, on, on what you mean. Like, do you mean most like uh, something that was most affecting, something that was uh, changed my way of thinking, something that was more relaxing and fun? Um, no, I would was- say <clears throat> probably the most meaningful or impactful, maybe on your perspective. Okay, that's easy then. Um, I, you know, and you might have noticed in Bad Tourist, the bulk of the essays, um, I mean, there's 15 different countries in Bad Tourist, but the bulk of the essays, if you looked at like percentage-wise, are either either take place in India or mm-hmm. Latin America. Mm-hmm. And both places, you know, so all of Latin America, you know, is, is a really uh, special and interesting place to me. I spent a lot of time there, studied Spanish there. Um, I love the pace of life um, there and the people and you know everything about it music and um and india i think is because it's of its for me of for its its sort of difference like foreignness if you will from a western perspective it's it's like everything is it's on the other side of the world right Mm -hmm. it um you know it the customs and cultures are so different from from ours here in the United States. And I really loved that. I felt, I felt shaken out of sort of my complacency. And you think, right. You think, Oh, I'm never ever going to forget this. And I'm always going to be a different person. And I'm going to become a, you know, um, better citizen in the world. And then you come home and you go back to your life and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But I do think that traveling through India profoundly affected, you know, me um, and I got to see the way other people live in the world and the difficulties that people have in the world. Yeah. I would love to talk about three hours to burn a body. Mm-hmm. Um, and just trying to put myself in your shoes. Cause I haven't been to India um, yet. I used to, I went to a Buddhist university and that was like my place that I wanted to go India, but I haven't yet. Um, the contrast between how they kind of handle death there and how we handle it here is pretty huge. I was trying to imagine, you know, those sights, those smells um, of what's it called where they actually do burn the body. Oh, at the cremation gaps in Barnasi. Yeah. And there's something else. Yeah. The gaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, I mean, that must have been affecting. Yeah, you know, it was. And um, and it's an interesting thing because it's also something that tourists do, right? So tourists 
go and watch the bodies burn. And and it seems so strange to us, right? Like that's such a private thing. But I, I found that in India, you know, my friend Shalai and I were also invited to like a wedding of strangers and they were like, come, come, you know? And, and I was like, that's crushing a wedding. And <laughs> grew up in Iran. And she's like, no, it's a, it's an honor to have like international guests at your wedding. Like, she's like, it's fine. And so she understood sort of the way things happen. And I think that comes pretty clear in, in, you know, in the book that she's sort of a more well-seasoned worldly person than, than I am or was certainly. Um, but this idea it, that was so affecting to me that this idea that it's all out in the open and that, and that, you know, the family watches and that then, you know, they, they bring the remains into the river because it's, you know, the sacred river. And when my mother died, um, I wanted to watch the cremation as a result. Mm -hmm. I felt like that kind of closure is something that we don't get mm -hmm. and that we don't, I mean, we're really bad at death in this country. Really bad. Yeah. We're bad at death and we're bad at grieving. And and that my new book, Animal Bodies is, is a book about grief and loss and, and grappling with, with those sort of ideas. But, um, but I wanted to, and they made it so hard for me. I actually couldn't do it. Right. So I said, I'd really like to come. And they were like, well, you know, it's going to call. I'm like, I don't care if cost extra. I want to come see it. And they're like, well, you know, um, we will have to hold the body until after the 4th of July. It was like June 28th. I'm like, that's, I don't want, my mom would be so mad, like to be in like a right. or whatever. So I just said, okay, fine, just do it. But mm -hmm. I feel like if I had had an experience like people do in India where they actually see, you know, it happen, then there's real closure there. Right. And, and they, they do it a lot better than we do as far right. as death and grieving and ceremony and all that. Yeah. Do you have any other experiences with kind of the death um, rituals or in, in other countries? You know, I, I've always, I, I don't, um, not off the top of my, my head, but you know what I've always wanted to witness and I haven't is a sky burial, mm. you know, where they, um, they let the, um, the ravens, you know, or vultures come and, and eat the body. Cause I think that would also be very, very interesting. And I've never, ever witnessed that, but that, that's something I would like to witness. Yeah. That's, that's powerful too. I wouldn't mind going that way. No, me uh, neither. Yeah. It's, it's better for the environment, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the environment, towards the, end of, uh, towards the end of the book, you kind of have this um, small discussion about having kids versus taking flights and um, the impact or the, you know, relative impact of each on climate change and things like that. Um, thoughts on that? Oh, my gosh. It's still... It's still something I very much grapple with. Excuse me. I drank some tea and went down the wrong tube. Um, I um, I still very much grapple with it because I know, I know that traveling is not good for the environment, the amount of jet fuel it takes and all of that. And I have tried to make some adjustments such as staying in places longer, right? Then instead of jetting around and mm -hmm. taking short flights and things like that. Um, and I've also been a lot more careful with my research, right, of, of trying to stay in places that are more sustainable, that are um, locally owned and not owned by some, you know, American company or, or mm -hmm. European company if I'm, if I'm in a, you know, like Latin America or something. Mm -hmm. And I've made huge mistakes. And in fact, I have an essay in my new book 
about going to the Colombian Amazon on my honeymoon. Mm-hmm. We did we did no research because we were trying to plan a wedding, right? So, and my husband and I had always just been like, oh, we'll just get on the plane and we'll figure it out when we get there. So we figured it out when we got there, but we were at an eco lodge that was not eco. It was mm. awful. Birds with clipped wings, you know, baby animals stolen from their mothers for tourist attractions. It was awful. And mm. it was because I hadn't researched, you know? And so now it's really important to me to, to, you know, even though I love spontaneity, I also think we have to research or else we're contributing to the problem. Right. Um, and then lastly, I mean, and I, I say this and um, it's always a risk to say it, I think, and I'm not, you know, advocating for people to not have children, but I don't have children. And that was a, a pretty conscious choice, um, you know, between my husband and me. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it is, you know, we don't want to contribute to overpopulation and to, you know, the, the our, our carbon footprint. And so, you know, and, I, and there's always this, right? I mean, we, we can justify anything, right? There's always this sort of, well, what about this? What about that? And, you know, it's easy for me to say, well, I don't have kids so I can travel. That's not really fair, mm-hmm. but it is for me, one of the trade-offs, you yeah. know, is you figure out what's important in your life and, and then you figure out how to live within your sort of ethical or moral compass in, yeah. in those ways. Definitely. Um, so I guess I haven't asked the obvious question. What for you is travel? Why do you do it? What does it mean? And then I want to talk a little bit about your kind of the <clears throat> temporal process of writing about traveling. Okay. Those are good questions. Um, you know, I think about the poet Mary Oliver and how she says that to pay attention is our endless and proper work. And I, you know, she means it not just as a poet, but as kind of a human. Mm-hmm. And I think you can travel in your hometown, you know, and I think that something COVID taught me is that I can be a traveler really close to home mm-hmm. and I can experience things and explore things that, that is, that I never even thought about, right. As a place to go as a, as a destination. And so I think being a traveler means paying attention right? To really pay attention to, you know, what, what kind of food there is and what kind of music and what, what people, how people are interacting with each other. And so for me, you don't have to go right halfway across the world to travel. You can just travel in your hometown and, and really pay attention to things and look at things, try to look at things from, from an outside perspective and, and understand that even at home, we don't, we don't understand everything. There's so many situations we we experience and we think we know what's happening. We don't know what's happening, right? You know, we don't know what's going on. And, and so just maybe humbling ourselves and and being curious is, is what I think being a traveler is. And I think also it's really hard. You know, you asked at the beginning, like why, you know, why do you write? And I think that I, you know, I said, well, writing is such a great thing because it helps me process sort of terrible things. But in some ways it also sometimes takes me away from the world. And so I have to be careful of that, you know? And so like, I'm going to Spain and I have all these like projects I want to work on that have nothing to do with Spain. Mm -hmm. So I could very well go to Spain and not be in Spain. Right. You know what I mean? I could go there and write my book and bring all my journals from the past so I can work on this new book, or I can go and just bring a brand new journal and go to places and write down everything I see. And I don't know what I'm going to do, 
but I kind of hope I'm going to do the latter, even though I want to get this book done. Yeah. Is I want to be there. And for me, I always bring a journal. I always, I write more when I'm traveling. I mean, I'll probably fill two or three journals. That's crazy. I, I mean, not crazy. It's different because I mean, as I was reading Bad Taurus, I'm like, damn, she's journaling a lot. I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't journal really while I'm traveling at all. I'll take a lot of photos, but, and this was kind of what I wanted to talk about, the, the time, the timing of your travel writing and how it works, because I'll write, I'll get home and then it'll just like game over, everything comes out and I'm writing about this trip for weeks and I'm curious if I should be journaling <laughs> while I'm while I'm out there would that help me pay attention more as you say and and kind of explore that curiosity more would it make for better travel writing because I definitely see myself as a travel writer as well then yes it would make for better travel writing. Absolutely. 100%. And here's why. And I think photographs are great too, you know, and, and I learned to take a billion pictures um, through my travels, not just for me, but for fact checkers. So like if you, um, if you publish a, you know, a, a essay in a, a magazine, they might ask you, well, how do you know this happened? And you can't just say, well, cause I saw it. But if you say, well, I have a photo of it, right. It helps with fact checking. And you maybe will notice things you didn't notice, right, when you took the picture. Mm -hmm. However, there are a lot of times when we don't know we're in the most important part of our story. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you're sitting in a cafe, right, and you don't think that there's anything happening. You don't think there's a story. But let's just say you're writing everything down. You're writing down the music, right, the song that's on the on playing. You're writing down what the couple next door to you is saying. You're writing down what you're eating, right? You, just because you're there and you're writing it down and you're noticing. Well, let's just say five minutes later, you look across the room and, you you know, you there's love at first sight. You fall in love with somebody. Well, something has just now happened. And now all those details, now when you write about that, it makes a difference if, like, you know, Lenny Kravitz versus ACDC was playing, right? Or whatever, right? It makes a difference. And sometimes what's playing adds this amazing texture. And mm. it can either like add it because it's like a love song or it can add it because it's something that's so not a love song. And then something about that really helps your storytelling, mm. you know? And so um, I um, I have an essay in my new book my new collection that's about traveling in Ecuador. And it's this, it's this essay um, where I am, you know, sort of thinking about my aging and mortality and as a woman getting older and I'm in my late thirties, I think 39 or something like that. And there are these two young guys and, and I'm thinking about this like, Oh, I've always like thought of a, you know, threesome would be like something to like check off my bucket list. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course I, I don't, not of course, but I don't, I don't end up doing that. Um, but we're like sitting there say all singing, you know, this, this song on, you know, on the bus and, you know, and so that song ends up sort of connecting to this sort of fantasy land in my mind of this aging woman who wants to check off things in her bucket list sheet that she knows might not be available to her in the mm -hmm. next year. So, 
so I, so I didn't know, right. That later on I'd be like dirty dancing with them in a club and have these fantasies, right. but I wrote that down. Cause that's what I do. So here's my thought as a traveler. I'm just like, want to do everything, see everything. When am I going to have time to write? What does journaling look like? Are you taking just kind of quick notes about those details or are you journaling like, you know, kind of your diary today? I <laughs> not, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I've gotten better at, at knowing what details I think are going to be important. And it's really interesting because today I was looking for my Spanish English dictionary, right? Cause I'm, I'm going on a trip and I found, um, and I found the one that I had when I went to Panama, and I I kind of opened it, and the beginnings of the coming um, of age in the Gunayala Islands in you know bad tourist was right there. I had like the name of the dance, I had the name of the drink, I had the like old ladies you know who were like you know saying like oh you know but actual like right and I wrote down all I wrote down what people said I wrote down that specific and I was even asking you know the guide like how to spell things um and I thought I, I thought oh this is so typical to find a you know a Spanish English dictionary I didn't bring a journal because it was like a hair cutting ceremony and I felt like I should not be like taking pictures and journaling right and that's a whole nother topic of like right. what is appropriate when we're you right. know in other cultures ceremonies um same thing with like in Varanasi, you know, I did not write anything down, but we went straight to a temple. Shalai and I asked our guide to take us straight to a temple and drop us off for two hours where we sat at this temple on the grounds and wrote for two hours after that experience, because we knew she's a writer too. We knew we wanted to, to take notes and plus it was so overwhelming. Um, but I think the way you travel again, like if you're jetting off here, there, everywhere, it's really hard to write. But if you say, well, I'm going to stay in the same place for a week and just see how it goes. And then your travel gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And then you do have time to take mm -hmm. note. Yeah. So uh, is that what kind of your journaling looks like is specifically notes about details and things you want to remember to kind of, like you said, add texture to the story? Yeah. And sometimes it's just like an inventory list. And I have a, you know, an exercise I do with students where we just kind of write lists like, okay, these are like, you know, and I do that when I do service travel writing too. Like, you know, if I get assigned to write a road trip of highway 50, I just start writing down like what kind of plants, what kind of animals, what I see, what people say, and I don't know what I'm going to use, but I know it's going to make my life a lot easier when I go to sit down and write those 600 words or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm one of those writers that doesn't really have journals from childhood or journals from even my travels. And I wonder about that and how that's impacting my writing. But um, try it. Try it. I want to hear how it goes, but I want to uh, try it. And see. I think I will. I'm taking a solo road trip. I'm leaving uh, Saturday through Southern Colorado and into Moab and some of the national parks there that I oh, great. really, I, I go there every chance I get, but I don't know all my travel writing because when I travel, my senses are so heightened and um, perception and awareness is heightened. And I feel like my memory serves me pretty well. 
but now you're making me wonder um what what are your kind of your thoughts on on memory and nonfiction? it sounds like you kind of treat travel writing almost like journalism i don't know if if that's how it is with all the types of writing you do if you're just always taking notes or I'm just interested and curious about yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I, I would make a terrible journalist. I, I really would um, <laughs> because I recreate a lot of dialogue, you know, right. based on what people have already said or what I thought they said or right. what you know, I do check with people like friends of mine who I've written to make sure I got it right. And I don't always get it right. Um, but I do think that the detail that you can write down, you know, when you're there, there's no, there's no way that you're going to remember all of that. Mm -hmm. And there are things you have to recreate from memory. And obviously memoir comes from writing about memory. And so, you know, the, the reader knows, right. You're writing about something that happened 10 years ago that you're not going to remember it perfectly. Um, but I, for me, it's just, you know, staring at a blank page and not having a journal to like help me figure out what I, what, where I was or what I, experience would be really daunting. Mm. You know, I, I, I don't believe in writer's block, you know, mm -hmm. and part of the reason is because you can always make a list. You can always look at your journals. If you have them, you can always, you know, just free write. And um, so I think it just, it helps me, you know, and my journals are the most valuable thing I own. And in fact, um, you know, in the summer, I put them somewhere else because I live in an area of high wildfires. Mm. In fact, our house was within like half a mile of a wild, a very terrible wildfire this summer, an eight day evacuation, but my journals were in a storage unit in Carson city. So mm. to me that like, that's the, my thing that I worry most about that the house will burn down and all my journals will be gone because I feel like that's, that's where my, my stories come from. Mm. Yeah. So that, yeah, that kind of leads to another question I had some of the stories are from, like you said, 10 years ago or more. Mm -hmm. um, did you write them recently? Did you write them then and revise over time? Kind of how long do you wait um, timeline wise? I would say yes to all of those. Okay. <laughs> so, so yes, sometimes I wrote an essay, you know, and published it like on a, in a journal and it ended up being different so that I could fit it into the book. But some of these were written, um, you know, shortly after they happened. And some of them I waited a really long time. And so sometimes I don't know what the story is. I am a slow writer. Like I, you know, I'm t I told you I was writing this book about my mom dying. She died four years ago. Mm -hmm. And I'll probably finish the book, I would say in another year. And then it takes another, what, two years to publish at least if it gets published. So it, we're like talking like seven or eight years minimum for me for an experience. And so sometimes I don't really know what the story is until something else happens. You know what I mean? So yeah. like, I don't know how it fits in with things. I have an essay I've been working on. It's been really difficult for me. There are two different experiences that happened to me in Northern England where my mother was from. And um, I don't know how to tell these two stories yet. And so I'm just holding the faith that something will happen where I understand what these stories mean, and then I'll be able to write it. They're written, you know, they've written, they've gone to my, you know, writing group who've said, these don't work yet, right? Because they're not, they don't work. They don't have what they need. Right. You know, hopefully I'll live long enough to finish that essay, right? <laughs> so 
so sometimes you don't you don't know what the story needs until years later. Right. You know, I couldn't write my mom book that I wanted to write, even though I wrote a book that she read while she was dying. And I question that. And this next book is not just about taking care of her, but it's about what it's like to write a book about what's happening while you're writing it. Mm. I sat across from her in chemo and wrote and knew it was going to be a book. And then it affected how I acted. You know, like I wanted to yeah. be the kind of person who could clean up shit, but oh. I wasn't. I wasn't, even yeah. though I wanted to be, you know, and I was like, shit, now I have to say in this book that I can't, that I got to get her caregiver to do it. Cause I can't do it. Yeah. You know? So that's an interesting dynamic thinking about changing your actions because you know, it's a story already. That's interesting. It's when life imitates art, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're going to Barcelona next. You're kind of trying to decide if you're going to be there or if you're going to be working on other projects. Um, what is there ever a time when you think about being there? Cause again, the journaling thing makes me feel like if I were to do that, I would not be as in the experience as I'd like to be. And I don't know why. And maybe I'm just being like, I'm hesitant because I'm uh, stubborn or something, but is there ever a time where the journal is down or away? Oh yeah. I mean, and, and I think, you know, I think for me, if I'm, a, if I'm traveling alone, then it's a lot easier because I go out to dinner by myself. I go to tapas bar or whatever by myself. I go, you know, and who wants to sit in a bar by yourself and you either have to bring, well, you don't have to, and maybe if I didn't, I would meet more people. But for me, to feel comfortable being in a bar alone or being in a restaurant alone or a cafe alone, I have to either have a book or a journal. And yeah. I usually have a journal because I'm so interested in my surroundings. So for me, it makes me more deeply in a place. Mm. But, you know, in this trip, I, I will be with my husband. He's going to be in language school much more than I am because I'm doing kind of refresher course and he's doing a beginner course. So I will have time to be out and about alone because he's going to be more hours in the language course. And plus we like to do different things anyway, but when we're together, I do journal less. So we lived in our van this summer for three months mm -hmm. and I did not write. I mean, it started to stress me out. Like I didn't write as much as I wanted to. And the two things that if I don't do, make me kind of into a horrible person are writing <laughs> and exercise. Like oh, I, wow. I get super anxious. I get like stressed out. Like if I'm not writing or I'm not exercising, I'm not so good to be around. Mm. So my husband will say, maybe you should go write, you know, yeah. take, go take care of yourself. Go write. Yeah. Uh, I would love to talk a little bit about your husband. I'm assuming that's Tom. Yes. Okay. The practical, the practical one. I'm really glad he didn't want a Midwestern wife. <laughs> um, I, the last essay, the very last one in the collection where you guys are stuck in the lightning storm and you eventually hike up to your porch and you go home. I, it was so powerful because I am, I don't want to go home either. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if this is true for you, but you know, being a traveler, wanting to go everywhere, doing everything, not necessarily wanting to settle down, not wanting to have kids. There can be a balance, which I feel like is what your 
collection ultimately shows like you can have stable love and a home and also travel. <laughs> um, hell, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Am I, am I way off? No, you're not way off at all. Um, you're right on target. In fact, you know, it's really interesting. I feel like my answer would be really different two years ago before COVID. Mm. COVID's made me definitely into more of a homebody. Mm. You know, um, like I think it's hard to get excited, you know, like we're going to Barcelona and we've talked about like, Oh, we could go from there. We could go to, you know, here or there, or we could go to Egypt or, but with COVID, you don't know where you can go. Like, right. We don't know. like right now, the numbers in Spain are really good because their vaccination rates really high. I mean, it's safer, a lot safer than where mm. I am right now. Right. Um, and I feel good about that, but that could change. And then, you know, and, and there are places that we absolutely cannot go that are dealing with, you know, full hospitals and all that. So I have learned to be more at home. Mm. And that's been my response is that I want to be more at home. My husband's response has actually been the opposite. Mm. <laughs> like he wants to sell our house or rent our house out full time and just take off. And I would be more open to that. And that was kind of the deal. We both quit full time jobs recently. Mm. And, um, I would, I, that was sort of the deal. And then COVID happened and it's made, it's definitely made me into more of a homebody. Like I love Lake Tahoe. I love where I live. I love, you know, the mountains. Um, I know, but I know also enough about myself that the second I get to Spain, I'm going to love where I am then, you yeah. know, I know that I can, I can transition. Mm -hmm. And I also know there's this thing about me where I get somewhere that's like uncomfortable. Like India was an example. Um, we got to Delhi and it was like crowded and smoggy and mm. overwhelming and, you know, so much, so much poverty. And, and the first night, I think we were there for about a month. The first night I was like, what have I done? Like, <laughs> what have I done? Why? And, but then the next day I was on board. And so every time I go someplace that I feel like that, like mm. I kind of felt like that on our van trip. We rent, we did rent our house out this month, this, mm -hmm. this three months and took off and lived in our van. And I, the first night I was like, what are we doing? Why are we living? And it's not a fancy van. It doesn't have a shower. It doesn't right. have a it's a Ford Econo line, right? right. What are we doing? <laughs> but because I've had that experience so many times, I'm like, yes, I can be home. And then the van, which is named Shrek because it's big and green. <laughs> the van became home and my husband and Shrek became home. And then I got, you know, I came to Tahoe to teach in the summer and there was a wildfire evacuation and Tom was a canoeing in Canada and I couldn't get a hold of him. And I realized, wow, he and the van are my home. And I'm like dealing with like trying to get the rest of the stuff out of the house and leaving and figuring where to be, you know, cause our house burns down. And I was like, now I'm really alone. I'm living yeah. in the dorm room. You know? <laughs> but Shit. Yeah. It's, I good remember. it's good for me to break yeah. out of my home it's, body. It took a while for me to finally travel abroad. I think it, I was, 30 and I remember just landing. I, I also, we have to talk before this is over about fear of flying because I am paralyzed by it. <laughs> um, so I'm all drugged up every time I fly, I flew overnight to, to Spain. I landed in Madrid and I'm, you know, I wake up and get my things together and I step out of the airport and I'm just like, fuck, what the fuck did I do? Like, 
and that's the Madrid airport. So like, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I had a little bit of Spanish at the time, but it was like, how, what, I don't even know how to get from the airport to the Airbnb or what am I? And then you just take the next step and I can't imagine being somewhere so much different than here, like India or something. Um, but fear of flying. I'm so, <laughs> it's going to come out wrong, but I'm so thankful that I have a fellow traveler that's afraid of flying because I get the questions all the time how it's kind of funny. Like when you won that grant or whatever to take a trip and you're like scared and freaking out on the flight and people are always like, how do you, they'll ask me, how how does that make sense? You travel all the time. You're flying all the time. Um, you'd think you'd be over it. Mine seems to get worse with time. <laughs> um, how do you kind of deal with it? Well, you know, I think getting worse with time, it's because the more you travel, the more things happen. Like maybe you're on a flight where it's super, super bumpy and, you know, the like all the oxygen masks come down or whatever. Um, those kinds of things have, you know, happened that are like really horrible flights. And so the next time I'm worried. So it's like, I'm not just, a, I'm not just afraid of crashing. I'm afraid of being afraid. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't like that feeling. And, um, and I, I do, I do hate, I do hate flying. Um, and when it gets turbulent or when anything seems to go awry, like anything like where, you know, um, uh, the flight attendant looks nervous to me or there's a noise that I don't recognize or something smells like it's burning. You know, it's probably some meal they're making or whatever. Mm -hmm. Although they don't make meals on domestic flights anymore. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I think about Mark Twain says courage is resistance to fear, not absence of fear. And like, I, I don't think I'm a very courageous person, but I do a lot of resisting fear and I do a lot of risk benefit analysis. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think about like, well, for me, the benefit of traveling outweighs the risk of, and there is no risk really, right? I mean, it is, <laughs> I, I looked it up. So there's a couple of things that might help you that help me. Number one. I mean, I've looked, if you, no statistic is going to help. Okay. You, your chance of dying in a plane crash is one in 11 million. One in 11 million. I mean, that is huge. Like, that's huge. Like, there's like... You're more likely to get struck by lightning. And so, <laughs> well, you've almost been struck by lightning multiple times. <laughs> me too, me too. But um, I'm afraid of lightning too. But, but so that helps me also. Like, most planes crash in the ten, first 10 minutes. So I watch my, like, watch for 10 minutes and I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, I can relax a little. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I don't know if I mentioned this in Bad Tourist um, uh, or, or my new book, but my grandmother died in a plane crash. You did mention that. Yeah. And so I think that's why I am so afraid and she died before I was born, but it's like someone in my family has died. So then one in a million doesn't mean anything. Right. right. So we tell our students, right. Be specific. Cause my grandmother dying in a plane crash in my life is more powerful than the number one in one in 11. Exactly. <laughs> but I, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that's helped me a lot is when I was flying with my friend Cholet, who, you know, who's not afraid at all of flying. And we've been on some pretty turbulent flights together. She's like, okay, worry when you really have to worry. Like, yes, it's bumpy, but there's a lot of flights that are bumpy. So just like when the, when the plane starts going down and they're like getting braced position, then that's when you're allowed to <laughs> 
And so I, I do, I have all these things I tell myself, you know, and, um, and I, I sometimes will take Xanax. I don't have any right now because I haven't been to the doctor and I haven't flown for so long. Right. right. Um, and you know, like tomorrow we're going to be on two flights to New York and I, you know, you can't drink on coach now and you, and I don't have any drugs, so I'm just going to try to work. Oh my God. That sounds <laughs> like a nightmare. I was, I can't even pretend to read. I was cracking up. Um, a about the fight with the teenage girl and the the seat back, but B, yeah, <laughs> the idea of sitting. You have to watch the wing, and your attention to the wing is going to keep the plane in the air. That is me. Like, mm -hmm. have, yeah, as long as I can see out the window, we're going to be fine. And I have like, you know, the number of dings. I know what all the codes mean, and everything. And I'm just like. Me too. And I know, like you said, when the engines reverse, and, you know, like, as soon as I know that we're landing, I'm like, okay, cool. But also the first like 10 minutes or the taking off is the worst for me. Um, but yeah, I have to do the Xanax too. I don't really drink. So that's not an option anymore. But I used to drink a lot on airplane flights. Um, but yeah, it, I think it's funny and ironic how we can be so in love with travel and doing it all the time and being the people that are afraid of flying. I, I wish I knew what it was like to not to let like the people that fall asleep immediately and, <laughs> and read a book and, you know, no, I, I get you. I'm there. I'm there with you. And I have this other, this thing I check it's called the, um, like you, if you Google it, if you Google USA turbulence forecast or like mm. world tur So then I know where the turbulence will be. And I like take a screenshot of it so that I'm like, okay, we're over Colorado. And then, mm -hmm. you know, it's more turbulent over mountains and coming into Denver is turbulent. Coming into Reno is turbulent. Yeah. So I, I think like that. And part of it is it's a control thing. Mm -hmm. It's like watching the wing. Like, look at me controlling it when right. I have no control. <laughs> exactly. I'm most afraid when I don't have control. That's oh, yeah. Weird. I mean, and, yeah, that's it. That's what yeah. it is. Yeah. Oh, I have to fly. Well, I'm flying to Philly for AWP in March and like have to start psyching myself up now. And that's like flying home for me. Um, and I still hate it. <laughs> I want to drive. I want to be in control, right? Um, all right. So we're pretty much wrapping up here, but I'm wondering if you could share some of your kind of, again, I hate the word favorite, but maybe some travel writing uh, as of late that you have really been loving or some of your all time favorite travel collections or anything like that. Yeah, sure. Um, so recently, um, I have actually have read a lot of, um, of travel recently. Um, uh, one, well, I'll start with a couple of books that don't necessarily feel like the traditional travel, but they really are travel or place-based. Um, one is Carolyn Forche's, um, what you have heard is true. Mm. And it's, um, a book about her time in Salvador in the late seventies when they were sort of on the verge of civil war. And it's, um, it's extraordinary. Mm. Uh, you might know her poetry, but um, this is an extraordinary memoir. Um, I also really love um, Camille Dungy's um, guidebook to relative strangers. Mm. And that's a book about 
sort of try, you know, she, she's a poet as well. <laughs> There's a theme here, right? Yeah. <laughs> writing memoir. Um, she writes about traveling through America as a black mother mm. and the way in which sort of people interact with her when she's with her kid versus when she's not. Um, but she, you know, she ends the, I think the last essay in the, in the collection is this extraordinary essay where she and her family go to Africa and go see those like slave castle things, you know, where they held all the slaves and, um, and it's, it's such a beautiful, it's a beautiful essay. So there is some international travel in that as well. Um, I just finished, um, uh, Mary Morris's All the Way to the Tigers. Mm. Um, and it's sort of a quest, like looking for, you know, the elusive tiger in India. Um, I also um, just read um, Tembi Locks from Scratch, which is a book about uh, grief and also um, Italy and sort of having a second home in Italy, um, but also what it's like to be a black woman traveling in Italy. Um, I could go on and on, but I won't. Um, <laughs> that's a few. I mean, I, I do read a lot of travel and, and I've tried to read a lot of travel books by women. Mm-hmm. Um, another one that it does grief and travel really well is, is called traveling with ghosts. Mm. Um, Shannon Fowler, I think is the author's name and Leon Fowler, something like that, but it's about losing her fiance to a, a accident with a, um, jellyfish in Thailand. Oof. Yeah. And um, so, of course, now I'm like, oh, I like if I go to Thailand, I don't know if I can get that wa- in that water. I mean, right. I in Thailand, but now that knowledge, right? I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So those are a few. Those are a few that I've read recently. OK, awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, there's a bookstore in Moab that I always go to when I visit there that has just a ton of travel writing books um, back, back beyond books yep that's it yeah yeah i just actually i just canoed the green river um recently oh nice yeah and i took with me um amy irvine's desert uh cabal have you read oh, that right no oh it's it's like teeny tiny so it's a great book to bring when you're traveling and so i brought it on our canoe trip and uh it's a it's kind of a letter to like edward abbey uh, you know mm. abbey country is where you're going right yeah Edward Abbey was also, you know, problematic in, in many ways, not mm. just imagine, but very mm-hmm. um, sexist and, and racist in, in a lot of his writing, you know? And so she sort of is kind of, you know, taking him to task. So it's mm. a good little book. I yeah. think I'll definitely get that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wonder if they have it at Back of Beyond. They for sure do. Okay. They have yeah. all of Abbey's stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, Cool. Well, thank you so much. I feel like I could talk to you for another hour and not get bored. Um, but I know you got to get ready for your travels. But I really appreciate you coming on. And I would love a copy of the next book and to get yes. to, to talk about that next time. Yes, yes. Um, thank you so much. And thanks for all the great questions.